Good afternoon, Professor Pelé. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you very much for having accepted this invitation to be interviewed once again for the Audiovisual Library. Uh, Professor Pelé, you teach uh, international law at the University of Paris Nanterre. Uh, you are the author of numerous books and articles on various topics on, of public international law. Uh, you are a member and former chairman of the International Law Commission, uh, special rapporteur for the topic Reservations to Treaties. You are also uh, an associate member of the Institut de droit international. Uh, but this afternoon we, would, we will uh, discuss another aspect of your legal activities and experience, uh, mainly your activities as counsel before the International Court of Justice. And in this respect, I would like to start with a very general question about the, your work and uh, the work and the functions of counsel before the ICJ. What are the specificities of uh, this activity? And uh, do you think that uh, we could refer to it as a profession or as a job? Well, thank you, Janata. Maybe I should introduce you as well. You are a member of the uh, codification division in the UN, and you are kind enough to to interview me on the, in that topic. Uh, well, I would say to, to your answer, very general question, I would answer yes. I think that uh, it is kind of a special job because the ICJ is a special uh, kind of uh, jurisdiction. And uh, for some of us, it could be a full-time job, although most of us have other activities. Well, all of us have uh, other activities as well. But I would think that uh, it is a problem. It could be a profession, and more and more it will be, because there are more and more cases, uh, although there is probably a limit of number of cases that the ICJ could take. And I think with respect to this, uh, to what you just called profession, you have often mentioned the existence of something called the invisible bar uh, of the ICJ or before the ICJ. And I would uh, appreciate if you would kindly explain what you mean by that. Uh, is it really a bar? And uh, if, that, if this is the case, in which sense? Well, it is certainly not a bar if uh, by bar you mean an institutionalized uh, uh, body of uh, people who have a special bar exam. Uh, but it is a bar in that uh, there are counsel and advocate. Maybe I should explain that uh, uh, counsel are all the people who participate in the legal team before the ICJ, while advocates are those who take the, the floor during the hearings. But, well, say counsel uh, as a generic term. So you have people who are counsel. Uh, the problem is that, in fact, anybody can be a counsel. You can ask this gentleman, this gentleman, this lady, more gentlemen than ladies, uh, uh, to, you, you, to be counsel. It's just a decision of the state. So there is no uh, professional qualification for that, um, which is very different from bars from any country. You could not uh, think that in your country, Switzerland, uh, you could just become... Uh, barrister without any special uh, exams, training, etc. While in the ICJ, anybody can be counsel, and some uh, counsel in, uh, in the cases I have pleaded, I, I think I have 
had more than 40 up to now. In some of my cases, we, we, we introduced as counsel people who were professor of geology, of uh, physics, of uh, specialist in uh, the environment. So this makes a, a very big difference. Now, I think, nevertheless, that there is something like the invisible bar in that among the people who plead before the court, you have, say, maybe 10 or I would even dare say maybe only a half a dozen of people who generally are international professors, although it's a little bit less true now than it used to be, and who are the old habitué who knows the tricks of the game and uh, who, can, who form de, de facto uh, uh, an invisible bar, which my my uh, late uh, colleague uh, Jan Brownlee called the Mafia of the International Court, which is a very small world. Since you just talked about the Mafia of the International Courts, maybe I would like to ask you a question. Uh, do you think that, or how would you assess the impact of this invisible bar? Do you think that it, in general terms, it enhances the quality or the efficiency of the proceedings before the court, or do you think that it might affect negati negatively uh, those proceedings or even the, the case law of the International Court of Justice to some extent? I don't know why it would affect it negatively. I, I, my view is that it, uh, it is really useful to have people who, again, know the, the trick, tricks of the game, who know how it works, who, who, who have understood the very special procedure. Uh, now, clearly, uh, I also think that if we were only, say, six or ten or twelve uh, members of this bar, it would probably uh, be uh, just repetitive, and uh, I think it is important to have new blood as well. Uh, and in all teams, uh, maybe we will speak of the composition of the team later on, but in all teams, uh, legal teams before the ICJ, you have a mixture of uh, the old habitué and the newcomers, and I think this is all right. So, uh, and honestly, I think uh, having the mafiosi uh, among a team is really helpful. Uh, if you had only them, it would again, and we have a tendency between ourselves to make the same kind of jokes, etc. And uh, so, uh, not too much. Uh, so, so I think you must uh, you must just keep a balance between uh, between uh, the invisible bar and the more uh, the turnover between uh, counsel. You just mentioned that uh, a large number of lawyers who act as counsel before the International Court of Justice are actually uh, international law professors. And I would like to ask you a question in this respect. Uh, I think that unlike regular lawyers who normally serve exclusively their clients, professors, and I'm thinking especially of those who enjoy a high reputation, uh, are also supposed to serve or even to preserve to some extent the legal science. So my question is the following. Shouldn't this mean that an eminent professor should not accept to engage in doubtful legal arguments just in order to satisfy a client? And in your experience, uh, have you ever felt this as a problem? 
Of course I have. Uh, but I think uh, when you are both a professor and part of this bar, or just cancelled before the ICJ, or any international tribunal, this would be true as well for the ITLOS, for the uh, Law of the Sea Tribunal, uh, I think you have to be a little bit schizophrenic. Uh, you have to to be, uh, as a professor, you, you cannot tell your, your uh, students uh, things we, you think are debatable. Or if you say, you, you, uh, if you tell them those kind of things, you must say, well, this is uh, dubious. Uh, while um, it's true that when you act for a country, you have just to find the best or the le least bad arguments you can find uh, to, to help it. Now, well, this is uh, part of the, the answer. Second, I would think that law, and certainly especially international law, is not a problem of yes or no, uh, black and white. Uh, I think quite often you have several possibilities. You can be convinced by one, but also you, you can, I think it is acceptable to have to have uh, several answers to, to a single question. Uh, and so this is second, the second part of my answer, but there is a third one also. I, you ask, have you been confronted with that? Yes, I have. My only requirement is that it passes what I call the test of the mirror. Uh, when I shave myself in the morning, um, am I ashamed of um, pleading something? I have pleaded quite often things which I think were debatable and uh, probably uh, things, uh, if I were judge, I would probably have voted against myself, but sometimes the courts has voted in favor of, of me, even in, in cases where I was not very comfortable. So you, you really pleading something which is untenable. I would never do that. Pleading things, you think, well, let's try. I mean, the, the problem when you, you are an advocate, uh, counsel, is really to, to fish the votes. Uh, the, you, you go fishing and you must, get, you must get a majority in the court. And you must try everything. Uh, I, I must also say that sometimes this puts you in a, and this would be the fourth point maybe, uh, this puts you in a difficult position. I am among people who write rather much and sometimes I plead things which uh, I have not always uh, proved in writing before or even I can contradict myself and also being uh, frequent uh, counsel before the court. Sometimes a client, uh, client argument, a client's argument will go one way and another will go the other way. And of course it is a game which personally I don't play, but that other counsel sometimes play to say, oh, but uh, Professor Pelle did plead that 20 years ago and now he's pleading that. So you have several answers. Uh, my is to say, well, I am acting as a counsel and a counsel must make the best case for their client. Uh, there was a very uh, much more witty answer by Lord McNair, which at the time was was only Sir, maybe just Mr. McNair. He was pleading before the court, and one of his adversaries said, oh, but uh, Mr. McNair has written uh, something which was which is very different from what he is pleading now. And uh, McNair's answer was, oh, yes. It was when I was very young, but I have now matured. <laughs>
Yes. So um, we might maybe turn to a second point. We have sp spoken a little bit about the functions of the legal of the legal counsel, but now I would like to um, uh, speak about a little bit about uh, the establishment and comp composition of the team, because I understand that uh, there is a lot of teamwork um, and in in this respect and. Uh, my first question would be uh, how important is the, the presence in these teams of both generalists and specialists? Well, first uh, a remark on the teamwork. Uh, one of the specificities, I think, of uh, being a council before the ICJ, once again, true, true also before uh, other international tribunals, is a, a mixture of uh, of important team work and very solitary work as well. Uh, you, you prepare your, your pleadings uh, and the uh, written pleadings of your state uh, in, uh, in your own office and uh, you, sometimes you feel very alone uh, because it's a very long process. At the same time, you are right that it is also uh, the, the team aspects uh, is very important and I must say as far as I am concerned, that uh, the, the teamwork is the most challenging, exciting and stimulative part of this special job. Now, th so th this is not an answer to your question, it's a kind of general chapeau. Uh, to, to answer your uh, question, uh, yes, uh, the, the composition of the team must be extremely balanced. I would think that the mafiosi, the, 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 the elements of the invisible bar, are all general international lawyers. Uh, none of us is specialized in a, in a field of international law. Say we know a little bit of everything, not much, just enough to be able to, to tackle the case as a whole. Uh, beside this, sometimes, not always, sometimes you need to have people who are more, uh, who can uh, dig up more uh, in a specific um, direction, uh, specific, specific field, because some of these cases are extremely technical. Honestly, I think that you must always keep in mind the fact that uh, the judges usually are general international lawyers and what you do not understand I suppose the judges would not understand either so if you have too many specialists you you risk to lose the judges uh, who would say oh this is so technical it's not no more Milo uh, so I am not very much in favor of adding specialists to specialists and as I have told you counsel are not all uh, lawyers, they can be, uh, they can be physici uh, physicians or uh, geologists or whatever, or cartographers, hydrographers, and I think that these you must be very careful in introducing them in the team and in the uh, duty in, in the functions uh, they per perform in the team. If they do too much. Once again, you will lose uh, the judges. So the, my answer is yes, you sometimes need specialists, but uh, the good old uh, invisible bar, or, or even people newcomers, but uh, of general international lawyers are 
probably more efficient. Uh, and you could not have a team composed only on, on, of specialists. Uh, I think it would be uh, rather intolerable for the court. They would not follow. So you just stress the importance of having a good proper balance between generalists and specialists within a team. Do you think it is also important to have within a team a balance between members who belong to different legal culture or legal traditions? And if I may add uh, another question, uh, according to your own experience, does this, I mean, the presence of members from different legal cultural traditions, does this usually lead to stronger legal arguments being submitted to the court? or? Does it also increase the risk of contradictions that might affect the overall strength of the legal arguments? I think this is a very important point, and maybe we, we can stand it for some minutes. Uh, first of all, international law is really a mixture of two big legal traditions. Uh, sorry for, for the other ones, but clearly it's a mixture of uh, common law and uh, Romano-German law or Latin origin law. Uh, and the judges speak two different legal languages. Uh, either they belong to one or the other culture. Some are more mixed. And clearly, uh, you must get all of them. Uh, you, you, must, uh, you must have the votes of all of them. They must understand what you say. Uh, so. Uh, the, the team must reflect the, the court. If you have a, a, a team which is entirely made of common lawyers, which happens more than the other way, uh, again you will lose the judges, the other, the other part of the judges, because grosso modo uh, it's really half and half. If now probably there are a little bit more flattened lawyers than uh, common law uh, origin uh, lawyers among the, the judges, but well, uh, you, you must have both. And I would say within a team, it's quite striking how much, uh, uh, say, a, a British and a French or, or an Italian are different. We think, of you, you can uh, allege that international law is, 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 um, uh, is single, but when you speak with your colleagues, you realize how much we have a different approach. And this is also very interesting and stimulating, provided you are open-minded and you understand that you cannot impose your view of the case. And it is very important to discuss uh, and to come to a common view. And then it is, from my point of view, it is indispensable to have both cultures represented in the team. In some cases, you, in particular, when it is decided that the procedure, uh, proceedings will be in a single language, which is usually French. The, 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 the Anglo-Saxons do not care about that. But um, the French-speaking countries uh, quite often decide when you have two parties from, uh, say, French-speaking Africa, uh, decide that the all proceedings will be in French. And then we have only French-speaking council. Uh, I am sure that it's not very good for the court because it will be more difficult for the judges from common law culture to follow us. So, uh, so this 
really means that you have to have a very balanced team between at least the two big balance. At least you must have one representative of the other uh, culture if you have one legal culture which is dominant into a special team. So this is one thing. You say, don't you think that there can be contradictions? I don't think so. I think usually you will have the, probably the same uh, reasoning, uh, the same outcome uh, with a different uh, reasoning. Uh, and uh, my view, when I, I sometimes I work with, uh, say, Anglo-Saxons uh, colleagues who are really uh, completely locked in their own way of think, uh, thinking. You cannot change their views, and this is rather, uh, this is a problem. But when you, when you are with really high-level uh, people, usually they will listen to you, you will listen to them, and you will find the middle way, which is the, the, the way to, to, to get, uh, to get the, the best solution for your client. Uh, now, also, uh, was quite often, uh, during the oral pleadings, we decide to plead twice. One in, say, in French, or at least in uh, 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 common uh, uh, Latin lawyer will take, the f will take the floor. And on the same topic, or slightly different one, because you cannot... You, you, the, the court could be nervous that you, you say twice the same thing, but uh, then... Uh, uh, a colleague from a common law culture will plead something which is proximate. And this is quite inter interesting an exercise. You don't contradict yourself, but it's uh, you have two different reasoning, which uh, is uh, you try to, to uh, convince the judges from two different perspectives. And this is very enriching, uh, more than contradicting. Has it ever happened that you have been requested by maybe by your agent or by your or into discussions with the other members of the team you were requested to make to present to the courts an argument which was typically a common law argument and you had to present it in French <laughs> yes well I am very well known I think in the court to be absolutely hostile to estoppel I think estoppel is simply not a uh, part of international law I mean technical estoppel as it is uh, at, as it is uh, practiced uh, before a English court in particular uh, is simply not part of international law it's just smart to speak of estoppel but it means nothing so sometimes I add nevertheless to plead estoppel but uh, probably I'm not very reliable on that and uh, the the judges who know me well, and probably more half of them know me, uh, would I don't take it very seriously. So it it can happen, but uh, I think an agent uh, would never impose on a counsel to plead something on which he says, no, I, I am really uncomfortable on that, I cannot plead that. Uh, you, you have always some colleagues uh, in the court who will take the argument you cannot uh, decently or, uh, well, if you don't feel that you, it passes the test of the mirror, you can have a colleague who will feel that. So. Maybe another question on this point, because I find it very interesting. Y you mentioned that sometimes uh, the different approaches to international law, the common law approach and the civil or continental law approach to international law, lead to the same outcome, but with li different legal reasoning. Does it mean that maybe the impact of these differences in, uh, 
affect less the substance, which means the ultimate solution, which is given to a legal question, than the way or the modalities in which the legal arguments are presented? Oh, clearly, yes. Uh, I think that uh, that uh, uh, probably uh, somebody who who comes from the common law culture will not will not follow the same reasoning. But we all are nevertheless international lawyers. And uh, although I think uh, you can, uh, there is no yes or no answer to to many questions in international law, probably your training will not, if you are a good lawyer, will not uh, take you to a very different solution. You mentioned before, uh, the role of the agent, and I would appreciate if you could kindly um, tell us a little bit more about the role of the agent and the council and the relationship between them within a team. So, yes, a team is a rather complex body uh, with a lot of uh, people and participants, sometimes a lot. Uh, I had a team, uh, my biggest team, I think, was Cameroon in the case uh, against Nigeria. And I think there were 70 uh, members in that team, uh, including 11 lawyers, uh, two deputy agent, uh, one agent, and uh, eight uh, lawyers from abroad. Uh, so it's a complex body which will be uh, constituted differently according to the cases, importance of the case, the technicality of the case, the special uh, pro- problems of the clients, etc. At the top of the team, there is the agent. The agent is the only um, person who is mentioned, whose role is uh, explicited in the statute of the court and the rules of court, uh, and is, he has several functions. First, he is the interlocutor of the court. Uh, he can only, he and only him or her, yes, I have it, uh, female say agent as well, uh, he, or, he or she can are the only one who can write to the register or participate in the meetings with the president for, for the discussions and the proceedings. Um, so this is one of his role. A second role, important role, is that he is the head of the team. And uh, he, he had to run the team, usually with the assistance of, of a lead counsel. Sometimes officially there is a lead counsel. Sometimes de facto he, he or she, uh, more he in, uh, actually, emerges from the, from the team. But you need usually a team, a lead counsel will coordinate uh, on the scientific level the, the team. But he, the agent with the lead counsel, uh, uh, the decision is the, the decision making maker. He has to decide uh, on things as important as uh, the calendar and the timetable for, for, the, uh, for the preparation of the case, but also sometimes on the substance. Usually in a team, we reach rather easily a consensus, but sometimes we don't agree, uh, not because you are British or French, but because because you have several solutions and the judicial uh, strategy is not always evident. And sometimes you are convinced that uh, you are right and uh, your colleagues will be convinced that they are right on something rather different. And 
at a time the agent must decide. It's rare, but it does happen and it is part of his duty. So this is a second role. Israel is a team leader. And the third one, which is from my point of view maybe the most important, is that he uh, or she is a go-between between the legal team or the technical team and the government. And he must have a direct access to the political level. Uh, he must be in a position to say, uh, to, to, to uh, even for very trivial reasons, a case before the court is rather expensive, he must get the money, he must pay the council, but also all the expenses, and this he must get it from his government. And uh, so, so he must have some authority, if only for that. But also to try to explain, uh, sometimes a client, a state party, is absolutely confident that he is right. It is right, and then uh, you lose 15 votes uh, against zero or one. Usually, your judge Adok will vote for you, not always. Um, so, and it's very rare that uh, a, a state thinks that he will lose. Probably Libya, so, so in the Chad Libya case. Uh, but I know another case where. Personally, I had always thought that uh, we could not win. I can tell you which one. It was Indonesia versus Malaysia. Uh, and it's, you have to tell your clients that uh, we will be in trouble. And it is very important for the agent to understand what is going on, uh, what the uh, likely outcome will be, and to be able to prepare the, the government and the, the public opinion to losing or at least not winning 100%. It quite often happens that they, there is no uh, yes or no solution, but uh, something in between. So, uh, And for all these uh, uh, questions, I think the this go-between uh, function is fundamental. So which level should he, he or she be uh, be chosen in the old uh, world uh, he or she will usually be the legal advisor of the of the ministry of foreign affairs uh, in the african countries they used to uh, to appoint ministers i must say it's uh, sometimes it's a problem because ministers are, are not very available and they must participate in the team meetings uh, if they want to be efficient agents uh, they have to participate but it's a problem of uh, of uh, competence in in the in the, the states and i think uh, and globally, I must say, I am rather satisfied with my agents. I have always, first, nearly always, I have very good relations with them. And I have always seen, nearly always seen them doing their role well. Some are not, I had even some agents who are not uh, lawyers at all. The important thing is that they can understand what are the, the... Of course, if they are not lawyers, they cannot say, well, yes, uh, Professor Crawford is entirely right and Professor Pelé is entirely wrong. Uh, but it happens so rarely that it doesn't really matter. There is a, another element relating to the composition of a, teams, of a team which we have not touched upon, and it is the role 
that is played by some law firms in uh, proceedings before the ICJ. And I would like to ask you um, if it is possible to, to maybe to say for or what kind of states or for what kind of cases are these law firms uh, resorted to and what is their relationship with the uh, council and agents? Well, clearly you don't, when you are a big state, uh, say industrialized state uh, with a rather strong uh, legal department uh, in your, uh, in your um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, clearly you don't need a uh, uh, law firm. Uh, Really, when you're a poor state with uh, with no um, skill uh, and uh, with too limited uh, uh, legal uh, legal department in your minister of foreign affairs, ministry of foreign affairs, because it is there that, uh, that they, they, you must find the 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 people uh, you have to to have a law firm. Now you have two kind of law firms. You have some very big. Uh, usually uh, British, uh, some one, one uh, and one American now, uh, law firms who are really, who take the, 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 the case and uh, take care of everything, including uh, legal aspects and uh, uh, counsel, uh, usual counsel are sometimes very reluctant in this, uh, in this uh, invasion uh, of the case by the law firms. Uh, so, this is one possibility. Uh, I must say, uh, not to discourage state to use their services because usually they are excellent, that they are extremely expensive. Uh, I know that in a case when my agent told me that uh, the law firm was uh, three times more expensive than all counsel altogether. Uh, while, and the other possibility is just to have a small law firm uh, which take care of all the practical aspects, uh, things assembling the uh, uh, written uh, pleadings, uh, reproducing maps, whatever, making hotel reservations, all these kind of things. Uh, and uh, in several cases I, I asked um, small French law firms who, which never intervenes in the purely legal discussion. But you, you must have uh, uh, lawyers because uh, they must also be able to read, to, 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 to polish up the memorial and things, uh, memorial, counter memorials, etc. So, but once again, you need law firms when uh, the Minister of, Minister of Foreign Affairs doesn't fee, feel comfortable enough to do it itself or is not obviously in a position to do that. Thanks. Um, I'd like to touch upon uh, another aspect now, which is the, the role of counsel in the various phases of the proceedings before the court, uh, starting with, the, I guess, with the preparation of the application, then the written phase, then the hearings, and possibly also questions relating to the interpretation or the implementation of the court's decision. But I would like to start with a very simple question. Usually, at what stage of the court's proceedings are or should counsel start to become involved? Clearly, the earliest, the best. Uh, it is uh, when uh, states begin to do 
things without consulting with, uh, with legal advisors, especially when they are not well equipped with, uh, uh, with specialists. Uh, you can sometimes have big catastrophes. I must say I had a recent case where rather very poor African country began, lodged uh, an application which was simply untenable and we had a very, very hard time in trying to limit the negative impact of that. So the the L is the best. Uh, then, uh, of course, you, you must, uh, the council must be associated with all the written and oral phases of the proceedings. As for the implementation, sometimes uh, states feel like uh, having, uh, having their council involved and uh, uh, some assistance uh, other time uh, in other uh, circumstances uh, they do it by themselves sometimes it's very easy to implement uh, to implement um, uh, judgments sometimes not but certainly as early as possible and this is true not only for poor uh, countries I think uh, in all cases the best is to before going to the court to have the council ready and do you think, according to your own experience, that there is a particular phase of the proceedings or a particular aspect in the preparation of a case in which the role of counsel is vital uh, as opposed to the role of the le legal advisor or foreign ministry or the, the role of the agent? But is there something really, uh, is there a crucial moment or a crucial phase where counsel has uh, a fundamental role to play? Well, than first, others. I think it, it really depends on the the other side. If the uh, legal uh, office of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is well trained, well equipped, uh, the role of counsel globally uh, will be less important than uh, in other cases. But maybe to to answer more precisely your question, I would say there are two steps where uh, counsel play a more important role. Uh, one is self-evidence during the pleadings, uh, oral, uh, during the hearings. Clearly, you have, uh, to, to, you, you are a kind of uh, actor. You, you play well or you don't play well, and you, the personal, uh, personal uh, characters of the council do play an important role. But the other one, and this is more collective, is the. The, the, the moment or moments when you decide the legal strategy, the judicial strategy. Uh, at this stage, really, the discussion between counsel, with the client, of course, but is crucial. And there, you can win or lose a case if you choose the, the bad uh, legal strategy sometimes. Uh, you, and you must also resist the client's wishes sometimes. If your client is totally optimistic on a case which you know is lost in, adv in advance, uh, they will want to be very aggressive. And I think a reasonable counsel will say, hey, try to save ev everything you can save. Uh, and there you must, uh, I think a good counsel must be 
courageous, although I know some of my colleagues say from the mafia, well not, and they nevertheless are good counsel. But uh, my view is that you must be very honest with the client, and it is really when you fix a judicial strategy at the very beginning, but sometimes you have also to change, and you are surprised, you, you, are, you, have, you are surprised with the uh, position of the, the um, opponents, uh, then you must redefine your uh, legal strategy. In these cases, uh, counsel's ro uh, role is really crucial. You mentioned that one of the of the of the phases where the the role of counsel is crucial is that of the pleadings, the the, 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 the oral phase, the hearings. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but my impression is that most of the counsel, when they when they when they um, uh, during the, the during the hearings, they basically read out their text. That uh, this is not a very spontaneous. Uh, process. So my question is, uh, do you believe that the hearings are really important and do, do you think that they really play a decisive role or impact on the court's decision? Let me first not answer your question but to, uh, to uh, tell you something about the readings. Yes, we read and I must say, uh, although I am a very old habitué, certainly probably the one who has pleaded most before the ICJ, uh, I read word by word. Uh, I have sometimes in the past uh, tried to, to uh, speak spontaneously as we do, and really it has never been very successful. So I read. Uh, you seem to, to, to criticize this. Implicitly you, you, you seem not to approve that. No, I was just uh, in light of the fact that that uh, most of the people read, I was just asking, what is the value added of the, of the, of the oral phase? Well, there are several. First, you must read because you are speaking in the name of a sovereign state, and uh, you are only counsel, and you are responsible for nothing. You don't exist for the court. You speak under the control of your agent. The agent must have some knowledge of what he, you say. And I must say, when you have an agent who only speaks English, and uh, while you, you must uh, plead in French, this makes quite a lot of problem, because you must uh, also translate your, uh, your um, pleadings, which is not a problem when it is prepared uh, three weeks in advance, but when it is prepared in the last night, it is a problem. So you speak under the control of your agent, and this is one of the reasons why you read, because you must not say something which can be dangerous. Uh, and which is not in line with the, um, with the strategy of your sovereign client. Uh, sovereign client is not just a client. And second, uh, there is this problem of translation and uh, the translators, uh, which are extremely good, the interpreters, I must say, in the court, uh, they must uh, translate word by word and better to give them a text and uh, to let them improvise at translations, even though they are very good, so their interpretation. So at least these two reasons explain why you read. This is the first. Uh, this is not an answer to your questions, but rather a defense of this certainly formal thing. Uh, so is it useful? It is useful first because it is a third uh, round of pleadings, uh, but also, uh, I think there are two main utilities. First, uh, it is the only phase where you, the state makes his public show. And for the, the public opinions, it can be extremely important. Many cases before the ICJ are 
politically extremely sensitive. So it is, they can see, oh look, they have pleaded, uh, and the, the, the pomp uh, of, the, the, uh, of the, the oral pleadings is important. It is in the great hall of justice. Uh, you, we, have, uh, we wear uh, sometimes beautiful robes. I have, as a French professor, I have red uh, robes. With, uh, uh, so th the show is important, at least for the public opinion. So it gives the impression that all efforts have been made. Yeah. And, and it is court. really, and I have always uh, kind of returned from the, uh, from you see that in, in the newspapers in many, many times. And I think for, for this reason it's important. But also, I must say, I was rather skeptical on is it really important? After all, we don't, usually you don't say very new things uh, during, but my, my the, the judges tell me, Yes, it is, after, it is in fact very important because it is during the oral pleadings, we, the judges, we understand your case, we see what you deem really important, what you drop, the way you, you try to convince us, and this is your, your last word and it is the last impression we get. So in, in spite of my rather strong skepticism for, for years, now I am convinced that it can change. And sometimes uh, when I see the judgments, I think, hey, then it worked. Uh, some argument which were made, uh, not made during the uh, written pleadings or which are made differently during the oral pleadings and the court has as boot what you, the, the, your last argument. So, so my answer is yes, uh, and uh, I think it is shared by, uh, by the judges them themselves. So in the light of what you have just said, I'm not surprised that you have been rather critical uh, concerning certain limitations, especially on the duration of the oral proceedings that are imposed uh, by the court. And, uh, uh, no, I am among counsel who are rather in favor of short uh, hearings. Uh, what I insist is that we have time to prepare the, the pleadings. It's something different. Uh, in the past, you could have hearings who could uh, were endless. If you take the Barcelona traction case, I think there were 90 sessions of the court, between 90 times three hours, minus 20 minutes of break, because you, you have to have a break. The judges are not that young. Uh, but, uh, so, so uh, uh, or in South Africa, uh, I think that there was 120 sessions, which for me is really outrageous, it's ridiculous. Uh, I think there is just a limitation. At some point, justice must not only be done, but also look to be done. And as I just told you, the, the last show is very important, for, for at also for this reason. But I am among counsel who are rather in favor of short pleadings, but long time of preparation, or at least decent times of preparation. You cannot answer an argument in these conditions with the uh, agents, the, the obliga obligation to uh, to inform your agent, to have his uh, blessing on what you say, 
to uh, and to show to 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 to, to have justice seem to be done, you cannot have in, uh, uh, be forced to answer uh, just uh, one hour after the, the end of the previous so pleading. I made, a, I made a public protest in the most recent case I have pleaded. It was the order, the interim measures uh, introduced by Cambodia against Thailand. And in the name of Thailand, I really strongly protested because we had no time to prepare. And I think that international justice as any justice supposed supposes a, a contradictory process to to be able to discuss you must have some times and uh, I would say cancel our human beings you you have even though we are used to to have uh, one night without sleep it's quite I, I practice this quite often still now but okay if you can avoid that I think uh, the judges could wait for one more day to have really good answers to, to the previous pleadings. So if I understand you correctly, you are less concerned about the duration of the pleadings than about the duration, the, of density, preparation. the density of the, of the pleadings, the fact that you don't have enough time to prepare. Yeah, I think just uh, uh, I plead in favor of decent time of preparation, yes. and of, uh, especially for the defendants, because for the the, the, the claimant, uh, the, the we have a lot of time. Usually, we have several weeks or months. So I think that we have touched upon many, many questions, and uh, of course, there is a lot to be said. But uh, unfortunately, I believe that our time is over, and I would like to thank you again for all these useful insights that you have provided us, and uh, and um, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.